great loan to make to, to, to enable somebody to buy a solar panel, um, especially in Africa, you know, if it's going to deliver electricity and then whatever they can do with that electricity. Yeah. When they get that electricity, Paul, one of the first things they see is that uh, the performance in school goes up because the kids can read at night. They also see fewer respiratory problems because people aren't breathing kerosene fumes. Hello and welcome to Rethink What Matters, the podcast dedicated to aligning the economy with the ecology and everyone for improved business performance, stronger families and a greener, cooler planet. And today I'm joined by Paul Hutchins, CEO of eco to solar Limited, and we're going to be discussing solar panels. And today I'm joined by John Bishop, CEO at Envest in Madison, Wisconsin, US of A. And we're going to be discussing microfinance and poverty. Good afternoon, Paul. Good to be with you. And uh, yeah, it's a great podcast to be doing, microfinance and poverty, because I think microfinance can probably help with nearly all of the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, uh, not just SDG 1, um, poverty. Certainly the first six are, may have a very strong case and even the next two or three. Uh, and then all the others are, are impossible with uh, widespread abject poverty. So I, I think you're right. It really does uh, influence about half of them directly and all of them in some way or another. Right. Yeah. So if you could, if we could please start off with uh, how you became interested in microfinance um, and your journey to creating Invest. Be delighted. Uh, my educational background is in evolution and ecology, and I was a and remain a very strong environmentalist. And after I I left uh, the the biology world, I, I became very, very interested in, in uh, sustainable development. And I came to realize by living in rural Panama that, that poverty was a major threat to, to the environment, and especially to an environmentally sustainable economy. And so I realized that, that social issues and environmental issues were not separated as they often are. That they, they were one and the same thing, that, that if you don't take care of the people, you, they can't take care of the planet uh, because mm-hmm. the incentives are just all wrong. So I became interested in microfinance really because I was an environmentalist and I was looking at a sustainable way of uh, addressing poverty. And so I... Uh, I, re- I went back to business school and got an MBA, and microfinance was among the things that I was interested in. Uh, the others could can be summarized pretty nicely by looking at your podcast page. Uh, you've interviewed folks who are doing a lot of the other things I was really interested in. So that's I came to microfinance through my uh, my environmental uh, aspirations and and hopes. Would you like to talk a little bit more about setting up Invest and that and that journey? 
Absolutely. I, after completing an MBA, uh, I have mine as a master's in international management from Thunderbird in Arizona. Uh, my, fortunately, my first job out of business school was managing a microfinance fund uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, which is why I moved to Wisconsin. And I've been here ever since. Uh, it was a it was a wonderful opportunity. I was working at that point with a fund in Nicaragua, and uh, I loved what we were doing. We were a nonprofit, and the one thing that that I thought was missing was a more market based approach. Uh, we ran on on some revenue, but also there was a, a fair donative element to it, and. Uh, we were raising donations, and it seemed to me that to be truly sustainable, it had to be a true business endeavor, and I thought that was absolutely possible in microfinance. And so I eventually uh, set off to, to establish my own fund, which I, I wanted to be very market-based. I wanted it to be a for-profit but with the, the mission and the, the values of a nonprofit. Because I think for-profits, and, and Paul, this resonates with you, for-profits can be every bit as moral as any other uh, mission-based organization. And that's what we seek to create at, at Invest, that we are a for-profit, market-based business that is, is concerned with the well-being of people on the planet as any nonprofit ever would be. Could you explain what microfinance is? Of course. Microfinance at the very simplest level is uh, small loans and other financial services, uh, savings and, and insurance, uh, generally to very low income residents who have needs for credit but lack access to, to credit. Uh, in many countries, especially outside of the, uh, the West, banking simply isn't available to a lot of low-income, very credit-worthy people. That situation is improving, but not fast enough. In microfinance, uh, a typical microfinance institution, they s could be either a nonprofit or a for-profit. They tend to lend to very low-income folks who the local banks won't serve. And they have figured out that these people are, are excellent uh, credit risks. It's often, but not exclusively, for entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, think somebody working in a, uh, who has a stall in a marketplace uh, in a, a large city or a, a fairly small village, anywhere in the developing world. They, they sell a few products. They need some uh, working capital to buy those uh, product by the inventory that they sell. They need uh, a stand. They need a little bit of equipment. If they're repairing anything, they need uh, the, the tools and the, um, a little bit of infrastructure. Uh, if they're small-scale farmers, they need the inputs. They may need the land. 
Um, so it's the need for for small amounts of money, just like a, a business in, in the West would need, just with fewer zeros on the uh, dollar amount or euro amount, depending on the part of the world you're from, or pound. Uh, and so the these institutions are very often founded by local folks, and so they understand the the business culture, the the social environment, in a way that that I never could. Uh, I I will I will never understand the social uh, and business culture of Uganda in a way that I would need to to lend there. But by lending to an institution in Uganda, I I strengthen them and rely on their uh, their knowledge of the the area. So it's folks who need access to to credit so that they can uh, pave their own pathway out of poverty and to to create a, a dignified existence okay so you're lending to institutions you're not actually lending to the uh, end user of the money if you that's exactly right we lend at present we lend to about 20 institutions in 12 countries then those institutions lend to the local folks who need it. Um, we we do not lend to to end borrowers. That's just not our core competence. And we don't want to get in there and compete with local folks who who are doing that. We want to to support their efforts, not compete with them. And are those institutions set up specifically to work with you? I mean, do you create those institutions or do they already exist? They already exist. They, they are sovereign, independent institutions. In most cases, they've been operating for years and years before uh, we come on the scene. They're borrowing from several different uh, lenders like us, from both domestically and uh, all over the, well, not all over the world, but for the most part, Europe and uh, maybe a few North American lenders. So does the borrower need to have access to the internet to access, to access these funds? It depends on the institution. Uh, for most of them, no. Um, phone banking and, and cell phone payments are becoming more and more common, especially as uh, cell phone ownership increases, even at the very lowest end of the economic spectrum. And so we're seeing more and more um, payments by mobile money, uh, and which usually requires an internet connection. Uh, but there are certainly a lot of end borrowers of these institutions that, who do not have uh, internet access. Okay, but um, but there is still they need to have some kind of technology to be able to use this, don't they? I mean. They're going to need a phone. I suppose everybody has a phone now, even in the poorest places of the world. Would that be true? I mean, I, I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's really, and again, some of our our partner institutions uh, do work with people who, who have no phone, no nothing. And so it really is uh, organization specific. It, it really depends on their products. But yeah, even at the very lower end of the, the economic spectrum, people have phones. I remember a, one time I was being taken to see some borrowers in Nicaragua, and we were crossing a bridge in a car, and there were women down in the, the river washing their clothes on rocks. 
And I saw one of them uh, put her clothes down on a rock and pull a phone out and answer it. And I thought, oh my God, the women washing clothes in the river are answering their cell phones. Uh, this was quite a while ago. I didn't have a cell phone yet. So I, that was kind of the impetus for me to buy a cell phone. Yeah. What is a Grameen bank? Does that, is that related to what you're doing? It's very much what we're doing. And Mohammed Yunus founded the, the Grameen Bank back in 1974 in Bangladesh. Uh, and he was one of the early leaders in microfinance. Um, he and uh, Finca and Axion and it, it sprouted up independently in quite a few places. And uh, a lot of people uh, consider Mohammed Yunus to be the father of microfinance. I think microfinance is one of those things that actually has quite a few fathers, uh, but um, <clears throat> but yeah, he so and he figured out the he along with a lot of other people figured out the group lending idea that people who didn't have um, physical assets that could serve as collateral could co-sign on each other's loan, and so if one person doesn't pay, the rest of the group has to pay it. And and so that there there were quite a few things in that that were really kind of brilliant. Uh, one is that you you really reduce the, the uh, risk because one person doesn't pay, uh, the loan still gets repaid. But it's a, it's a lot more profound than that in that when they're forming up the groups, people have to choose their groups. And if everybody wants to be in Rosa's lending group, that tells you a little something about Rosa. You, she's probably a pretty good uh, lending risk. If nobody wants to be in Enrique's lending group, it tells you a little bit, bit about Enrique, and maybe you don't want your money in his hands. Um, lots of people know Enrique. That's a great idea. idea. Just, just want to put that in there. But um, uh, it, it was a, <clears throat> a way of doing due diligence on people you didn't know, but you could tap into village knowledge. Uh, and, and also, when people are getting a little bit behind, the other people in the group will come over and say, hey, you know, it'll be there'll be a bit of pressure. There'll be some help. Um, and so it, the, the, the group lending model, it's getting less used, but it's still quite popular, and especially in Africa. Uh, and that that was one of the real breakthroughs in microfinance back in the early 70s was to figure out how to lend to very, very low income people who had nothing to offer as collateral right okay um but that's not the only type of microfinance that exists and it's possible to lend you know differently not just to groups certainly as and especially as uh as there's economic advancement uh once people do have some assets then asset-backed loans in a lot of ways are really more efficient um a lot of people start in group lending situations and then they graduate to individual loans uh, once they have uh, something that will serve as collateral. A television set is often the first piece of collateral. Um, uh, land can do it. Quite a few, um, if you have a beauty salon, uh, the mirrors and the equipment for the beauty salon often can serve as the collateral. So. They can, when you can match the, the what they use for their business to collateral, uh, they can get away from the group loans. But the group loans are still a wonderful place to start folks who are just 
too far down the economic spectrum to be able to do that. Many of our partners have both individual and group lending. Uh, okay. For not all of them, some do only individual, some do only group, but a lot of them have a, a mix of the, the two products. And if they fail to repay the loan, what, what happens then? So if it's in a group situation, uh, the, the rest of the group has to pay. If it's in a, um, uh, an individual, what happens depends on the organization, also depends on the circumstances. All of our partners, as I kind of think down our list, really the, the first question they ask is, are they not repaying because they can't or because they won't? Um, if, they, if they can but they won't, then it, it usually goes to judicial action um, after it goes to collection and then to something judicial. Right. What's more common is that people absolutely acknowledge that they need to pay, they want to, but they can't. And then there, there's usually a workout, there's restructuring. Um, the loan may eventually get lost, but, uh, but there, there's, it's a much more collaborative approach uh, if you know, something happens. Give just a final cap on that question. What happens if they don't uh, repay? They don't get any more loans. And, and that's a huge incentive that if you repay your loans, you'll get additional loans and for a greater amount. And so you're actually in, in most situations, you're in better shape if you repay your loan than if you don't you're never yeah. getting a loan again. I'm thinking they, I'd imagine they all want to repair, but they probably don't get a lot of support maybe in helping to run their businesses. Or, and so I was just thinking the risk might be a lot higher and, you know, they're already, they're already in, a, in, a, in a difficult position. So they then find themselves in an even more difficult position, you know, could, could make things worse for them. That is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that if you're in a, a especially in a fairly small village uh, and you're f selling some fairly basic product, at least at a very small scale, you likely don't have much competition. Right. Uh, and so while the, the part of their business opportunity is precisely because of the lack of infrastructure. And so a, what a lot of these loans are doing is they're going to finance the provision of this infrastructure that a lot of businesses business services become available because they get financing to provide them. Um, mm -hmm. Before cell phones became so prevalent, uh, one of the major activities for, for lending was for people to go around through villages with a phone and cell phone calls. Uh, that, was, that was the Grameen Bank did a lot of that in uh, the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, that's been supplanted, but that gives you the kind of I an idea of the kind of thing that um, was actually a, a business service that was uh, available if there wasn't a payphone in the in the village. So okay. the the lack of infrastructure often results in the business opportunity itself. Okay. And can you share some stories, some success stories that you've seen through, um, through, through the lending that you're doing? Uh, 
Well, I'm glad this is a three-hour uh, podcast because I can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, just maybe one, one or two, just you know, uh, good news stories because we need a lot of we need more good news stories on you know to share, don't yeah. we? Because you know, the, the the challenges that we have in the 21st century, we want to know that we're making progress as well. I've got several. Uh, I visited a, a store in rural Nicaragua one time. They they sold clothing and food items and stuff. And uh, there, a lot of people in the village could only come at night, and they didn't want to buy clothes at night because they it was dark. When they borrowed money to buy a solar panel, they had light, and their clothing. Uh, sales just skyrocketed as a result of getting this solar panel financed with a loan. The other thing is that that, uh, that house now had a, a workable television set in the evening. And so it was the only TV set working in the evening. And so everybody came and watched it and would buy a, a bag of chips while they were there. And so their, their business just skyrocketed as a result of buying this, the solar panel. Yeah. Uh, a, Another um, more recent one, one of my colleague, our, our East Africa rep, was just visiting a person in South Central Uganda who took out loans because she's a seamstress and she can, um, she needed to buy a sewing machine and cloth and tools. And, and so she could, she could buy more cloth and, and just turn out projects more quickly. She also trains local kids who don't have, who can't afford the school fees to be um, tailors as well. And so uh, in addition to running her own business, she's a very civic minded person and she's able to bring them in as, as apprentices and then they can uh, go off and set up a shop somewhere else. And so, a lot of people would look at these kids as competition, but she just sees it as as giving back. And this is somebody who lives a very simple life, but she still uh, is able to give back because she has access to, to credit. And so a lot of people are getting a useful skill because this one woman, her name is Naomi, uh, has access to credit. And when, when our representative, Annette, told me that story, it was... It's, like something I've seen so many times, but it was just one of those things that reminds me why I do what I do. I really like that story. So how often are you seeing that uh, through the lending that you're doing, that you're creating jobs? It's, it's constant. It's, so we, we, what we're really providing is access to credit, which is obviously providing livelihoods. Um, about 15,000 people are getting access to credit because of our activities. Um, I wish that I, I would love to put three more zeros on that number and then another couple of zeros after that. But uh, as we grow, that's really what we look at is access to credit. Because when you give access to credit, you're providing a livelihood to that person and very likely a, a, a job or two or three. Um, around that person, and they're becoming a, a, uh, a part of the, the financial ecosystem in their, their community. Uh, they, they're now 
able to buy more products for their business and that's supporting some other entrepreneur. And so you get a, a, a real financial ecosystem going there. So you're, you're lending the money to sort of entrepreneurs, uh, people who already have some idea or have an idea or a group of people who have an idea. So they're not, they're not completely on their uppers, these people. They have got food. They've got, you know, they're not, they're not in complete poverty by the sounds of it. The people that are help, helping here. Would that be fair? I mean, how low down the spectrum of poverty are we able to go with microfinance to help poor people? Yeah, good point. It's getting pretty far down the, the economic spectrum. It is, to your point, the people have absolutely nothing and have no way of uh, uh, putting together a business are going to be um, hard-pressed to, to, uh, to take advantage of this. But even then, there are stories... This isn't one of ours, but I, I remember reading about a woman who bought a barrel of toothpaste and started selling toothpaste by the spoonful in the market. And uh, she, you know, she had, there was no skill other than being able to take a spoon and dip it in there. Um, but what she had was the intelligence and the foresight to realize that, that people didn't have toothpaste and they couldn't afford tubes of toothpaste. And so even people pretty far down the economic spectrum uh, can very often figure out some um, financially lucrative activity that they could do if they could just buy the barrel of toothpaste. Or and the institutions that you work, they, you work with, are they also delivering education and awareness programs that there is this credit available? And if they have got a bright idea about toothpaste, you know, here's, here's a way of accessing it because oftentimes people just don't know this this sort of thing exists yeah so the um the one thing i that i think is i do want to be clear about most um most microfinance institutions require six months to a year of experience with the, the business in question so this okay. isn't startup capital and it, it often gets presented as that and I just want to make sure that we're clear that it usually is to people who have a going concern. Um, okay. Very often they don't have much of a going concern, but they are already doing whatever this is, and they could be doing more of it if they could buy you know, some tools, uh, if, if they just had a hammer or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and also I want to make it clear, we're, we're generally not talking about $20 loans. The, our... The average loan size in our portfolio is about $800. Um, mm -hmm. Still, that's, that, that's, a, that's a fairly fairly small amount of money in the, that can keep a family going. Um, as to the kinds of educational uh, opportunities that the institutions give, a lot of our partners um, have basic numeracy training programs, they have marketing, um, they have, they call it commercialization, how to get your your product to market. Um, in a few cases, especially in the, the agricultural dependent ones, they help them get their, their product to market. And so the, the institution often serves kind of as a cooperative, a, a a receiving co-op so that they can get better market prices and they can get them bulk rates and things like that. Um, 
that's not the norm, but we do have a few partners who do that. Um, gender rights training programs are fairly common. These things are getting a little less prevalent as the competition gets greater, but they still do have those, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so there usually are some sort of training opportunities, usually having to do with marketing and, and basic numbers and basic accounting. So it'd be great to see that, you know, that through this microfinance is being delivered um, to these entrepreneurs that you know, they are creating uh, jobs, you know, they're increasing the, the local economy, um, and then that would filter through to improved, you know, um, healthcare and education, yeah. so that everybody benefits from it. Um, I mean, are the investors there? Are, are there sufficient numbers of investors, you know, who want to invest in these sorts of funds? We have 87 investors right now. Uh, we hope to improve that. The, the real challenge is, is to find ones. That, there are a lot of people who would love to invest, but they don't meet the, the net, net worth requirements. And do these do these investors have to be very um, philanthropic and altruistic in, in their investments, ideology? Would they be going somewhere else where they get a higher return? return is near market. If you compared it to, to something at the same level of perceived risk, it probably doesn't perform up to that. But it's not heavily concessional. And that, that's really part of the, the, the goal and the vision of Invest is to, to deliver near market to market rates of return, because that's when it becomes sustainable. As right. far as the, the investors, some have a, a fairly philanthropic mindset, but most of them need to make a, a market rate of return and they're willing to take a very slight haircut for the, the mission, but they won't take, you know, they won't go for a, a 0% or a 1% return. Uh, they, they need a, a near market return. And so I, I would say that, that right. describes 90% of our investors. And do you put any restrictions on the types of businesses, uh, borrowers that you'll lend to? Uh, we vet the institution. <clears throat> um, we make sure that their, their values and what they're lending for is consistent or consistent with what we do. One thing that I'm particularly interested in is uh, supporting renewable technology, solar panels, efficient cook stoves. And so we're particularly interested in, in lending to um, microfinance institutions that have solar lending products. That's a lot more prevalent in Africa than it is in other parts of the world. And our main source of growth right now is Africa. Seems like a great, uh... A great loan to make to, to, to enable somebody to buy a solar panel, um, especially in Africa. You know, if it's going to deliver electricity, and then whatever they can do with that electricity, yeah. When really. they get that electricity, Paul, one of the first things they see is that uh, the performance in school goes up because the kids can read at night. Okay. That's one of the first things they see. Um, right. They also see fewer respiratory problems because people aren't breathing kerosene fumes. That's brilliant. And I heard uh, a little while back, actually, that there is a very 
tight correlation between power not going down every five minutes and GDP. And I think you just made a very good example there. Education improves because the, the lights are on. And then if we can get, especially these developing countries, to, to get the lights on without producing the fossil fuel, uh, the mm. fossil fuel emissions that we do, that, that's really my dream. Be, use microfinance to, to build up economies by going a, a more sustainable route than the one we took. To make a, one point that I think is kind of interesting, getting access to a lot of people, about 15,000 people, we're also strengthening these institutions. And when you strengthen institutions, they have more power to do things in their community and they hire more people and they can educate more people. So beyond the, the micro entrepreneur level, you're also helping these microfinance institutions that are able to branch out into other financial products. And quite a few microfinance institutions have become banks over the years in many countries. You know, Grameen Bank didn't start out as a bank. It was a, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was a, well, they called it a bank, but it didn't have a banking license at very first. And a lot of institutions that start out as uh, lending, as microfinance lending institutions, then become uh, financial institutions and then be, get a bank license. So a lot of these, these MFIs, you, you could really consider it a breeding ground for banks. And having banks that, that have their, their roots as um, social and impact organization is certainly not a bad thing. Having a lot of banks that, that have impact and, and social progress in their DNA is, is a positive thing. So that, that's another aspect of, of microfinance, well beyond just the folks that hires, but the, the competence that it, it breeds within a country. So... SDG 16, you're supporting that as well. Peace, justice and strong institutions. Yes, absolutely. John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. Thanks very much for your time and in sharing your knowledge about microfinance and, and your journey as well to setting up Invest. And uh, yeah, you know, thanks very much for the work you're doing and helping to address poverty in the areas where you are and create opportunity where perhaps... You know, it didn't exist before. So again, thanks very much, John, for your time on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. And also thank you for highlighting the efforts of so many others. I looked at your podcast page and there are a lot of people doing a lot of good work. And I think what I do is important, but so is what they do. And thank you for highlighting that.